This is On Target, a look at politics, crime, education, what's happening in Newfoundland and Labrador with the people who know. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your On Target host, Linda Swain. Good afternoon, everyone. How are you all doing? Well, what a busy, busy news day. (laughs) uh, If I sound out of breath, it's because I am. (laughs) Just rushing in now after a very busy uh, morning in the VOCM newsroom and uh, all the news uh, will be provided to you throughout the course of the day. Well, uh, today marks the beginning of the um, fishery in Newfoundland and Labrador in many areas. Uh, it, it's, you know, sort of a staggered opening right across the province. But uh, for some, they're getting out on the water now, and it's an important time of year. And I got a call on Friday saying, you know, are, would you be interested in this kind of a show? And I said, well, come on with it. Let's do it. So the fishing season is getting underway, and the Canadian Coast Guard wants to ensure that harvesters and others are safe working on the water. Well, my guests today include Krista Lee Cole. She's the Deputy Superintendent of Search and Rescue with the Canadian Coast Guard Atlantic Region. Hello, Krista Lee. Hello, Linda. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. And Mark Gould is Supervisor of the Canadian Coast Guard's Maritime Rescue Subcenter here in St. John's. Hello. Hi, Linda. Pleasure so, to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. So, Krista Lee, I guess I'll start with you. The season's getting underway. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, open today, the uh, fish part of the, in some areas around the province. And uh, I guess this is your bag, I suppose, for want of a better word. Uh, why is emergency preparedness so important when you're prosecuting the fishery? Well, you know, Linda, anything that uh, anybody can do to be prepared when they head out on the water, you know, certainly to help them be more safe, um, aids in how we prosecute search and rescue incidents when those things go wrong and, and our ability to help to help them. So, yeah, that's why it's, uh, this message is, comes at a key time for sure. And as we know, and we've seen it all too many times, the unexpected can happen and sometimes just like that in the blink of an eye. What are water temperatures like out there right now? Around this time, uh, water temperatures sit somewhere around 2 degrees Celsius, so pretty cold. And I think we've all been, uh, especially here in Newfoundland and Labrador, we've been in those circumstances down on Salmon Cove Sands or Northern Bay or wherever you happen to uh, like to uh, sit on the sand in Newfoundland and Labrador. And even uh, during the heat of summer, if you put your little tootsies in there, you automatically feel that cramping sensation. Yeah, that's for sure, uh, Linda. So when we talk about cold water immersion, um, I guess there's a principle that they refer to as the one, ten, and one principle, and uh, basically gives us a little overview of the thing, the sort of things that will happen when we have that cold water immersion. So the first factor is one, so one minute. So um, that's what we call cold shock response. It's uh, when you hit that cold water, it's the gasping, the hyperventilating, the panic, and it's a time when your focus really needs to be on your breathing. Um, and this is what makes PFDs, uh, flotation devices, so important. It will give someone immersed in the water the opportunity to focus on their breathing instead of focusing on keeping their head above water. Um, also of note, in this cold shock response, it's the, this is the normal period when, uh, when drowning would happen. 
Um, I guess the second part of that is the 10 minutes, and it's what we refer to as cold incapacitation. And that's what happens um, when, you know, your extremities cool and you lose sensation. So your ability to, to grip onto something, a rope or so in this 10 minutes, we strongly encourage people to take advantage of the ability to still have their extremities functioning and to make an effort to self-rescue, zip up your immersion suit or you know, whatever the case might be. Um, and so along with losing the sensation in your extremities, obviously you'll eventually lose the ability to, to swim or to, to fight to keep your head above water. Um, and then the last part of that one is in, it's one hour and it's called immersion hypothermia. And it's the gradual cooling of your core body temperature. And eventually that'll lead to loss of consciousness. So, um, that's what happens and again reiterates the reason why the importance behind the personal flotation. Um, even when you lose consciousness, you know, devices such as these can keep your body on the surface. So what is actually happening in the body when it is immersed in cold water like that? Why do you lose the ability to use your extremities? Um, so, well, basically what happens when you're immersed in cold water like that, um, the, the blood flow that will go to your extremities, your, your heart works really hard to keep it around the vital organs. So the blood flow is restricted to your hands, your feet, and uh, brings all the blood to, to the core of your body to, to keep you functioning. And it, when you're talking about this one ten one, and the the last one is one hour, I understand. So, it, you know, once you start to lose that consciousness, are you still able to be revived and rescued? Uh, yeah, I guess uh, you know, losing consciousness um, within if you're rescued or within a, a particular time frame, that's still obviously an option, but your chances of survival at that point once hypothermia begins to set in, obviously they reduce. So when you're operating on a vessel, uh, you know, we often hear about life jackets and immersion suits and the rest of it. Sometimes you don't always have them on. Uh, either you're in the bunk or whatever the case may be when something happens. Um, is there time to put these things on? Should you always be having them on? How, how, what kind of protocol should you have there? Well, I, I mean, I think it's uh, it's important. So, as you said, sometimes you may be in the bunk when this happens. I think the main thing to remember is to know where your your PFD or your life jacket is located, and uh, that should be you know um, priority, I guess. If you do have to evacuate or end up in the water, um, if it's at all possible, then definitely get that and get it on. Now, sometimes you hear people say, oh, I can't work with that on, and, and what difference does it make? I'd rather just, you know, I'd rather just go suddenly than, than die of hyperthermia. What's your response to those kinds of reactions? Because I hear it all the time. Um, understandably, you know, they're not uh, necessarily always uh, the most comfortable thing, but um, I think as demonstrated from just our brief conversation around cold water immersion, um, it, it can it can save your life. So obviously, maybe not working with them on at all times, but knowing where they are and making it a priority in the event that something happens is definitely important. And if you don't do it for yourself, I suppose, do it for your family. Absolutely. Do it for your family. 
My guests today on On Target are Krista Lee Cole, Deputy Superintendent of Search and Rescue with the Canadian Coast Guard Atlantic Region, and Mark Gould, a supervisor of the Canadian Coast Guard's Maritime Rescue Subcenter here in St. John's. And I want to talk to Mark when we come back after the break about what do you do when there is an emergency and how all that works when we come back right after this. The Workday winds down with Greg Smith in the drive. Get up to speed on the day's events and current traffic, weather, and community updates each weekday afternoon on your VOCM. This is On Target on your VOCM. And we're back. And the fishing season is beginning. In, well, it, you know, many people are already participating, but um, it's getting underway in a big kind of way now. And uh, the Coast Guard wants to make sure that people are thinking about safety first and uh, ensuring that uh, people are able to get out and participate in the fishery and uh, come home safe to their families. Well, uh, my guests today are Crystal Lee Cole is the Deputy Superintendent of Search and Rescue with Canadian Coast Guard Atlantic Region. And Mark Gould is supervisor of the Canadian Coast Guard's Maritime Rescue Subcenter here in St. John's. Uh, so, Mark, what is your role? Hi, Linda. Yeah, my role is, is just to, to manage the centre and supervise the operations of the, the Maritime Rescue Subcenter. So the centre itself is made up of uh, uh, search and rescue coordinators. They're uh, experienced marinators who've done extensive training in coordinating search and rescue response. And, uh, and my role is just to... Uh, make sure that things run smoothly and that they are able to do the jobs that they've been given. So what kind of calls do you typically get? Well, that's, that's one of the, the challenges with the, our kind of work is when the phone rings, you really you don't know what to expect on the other end. It can range from um, you know, somebody who's just looking for information to somebody who is, is in the middle of uh, you know, a distressed situation on board a ship that are screaming for help. And, and so it really ranges and, uh, you know, we just rely on our experience and training and, and, and tackle each one as they come in. So that's where the coordination comes into play, because I imagine there are a number of resources, groups, agencies that have to be coordinated to, you know, get the right rescue operation underway. So how does that normally work? Well, so normally it just it starts with that initial notification, which is the most important part of, of a SAR case. You know, you, if we don't know that something is happening, there's really, you know, we won't even respond. We just simply don't know. So activation of the SAR system, a phone call, a beacon, you know, someone calling for help on the radio, that's what starts it. And that's the, the most important part because that allows us then to respond. And the coordination aspect involves investigative work to determine exactly what the emergency is, where they are, um, you know, what kind of assistance they need. And then leaning into the, the resources and the partners and, and the SAR system as a whole to try to save that person's life. Um, you know, it's a complex system made up of a, you know, a bunch of excellent men and women who, uh, who really live this, this kind of life every day and this is their passion. And you mentioned the investigative work that gets underway when you you are alerted, because sometimes it's a phone call, uh, sometimes it's something a little less than a phone call, sometimes it's just a beacon. So how do you get to the bottom of that? Because if, let's say, the RNC or the RCMP are called, sometimes, you know, it's a person saying, look, you know, I think there's something going on over it, and they'll give an address, and, and they'll tell people what they hear. And, but you don't always get that luxury. No, and and that's where 
you know, that's a big part of why we wanted to get out here and, and speak to people right now is just to, to let everyone know that the, inf- the kind of information that is important to us. Uh, for example, the, an emergency beacon, a distress beacon of, of any type, like an EPIRB or a PLB, uh, I can't say this enough that my number one recommendation would be to look into those because they do save lives. They take the search at a search and rescue is what we like to say because they tell us that someone is in trouble and they give us a position. And uh, equally important with that is that when they're properly registered, they also tell us who it is, um, what kind of boat we'd be looking for. It gives us family information so that we can contact their their family and let them know that there's something in trouble or hopefully just call them and find out that it's a false alarm, which, which also happens. And we take a thousand false alarm calls like that before we take a, a real one. We had one over the weekend actually where, uh, you know, a fish harvester just received a new PLB through a, an, an initiative uh, from industry there to, to get them out there. And he was just playing around with it in his garage and uh, hit the button by mistake, quickly turned it off. But that signal went to the satellite, came immediately to our center. We plotted the position, and we were able to put a pin right on that man's garage. Uh, quick phone call later, confirmed that it was a false alert. So they work. They're excellent pieces of equipment, and I highly recommend them. So I take it from that, then, that not all vessels have these beacons. No, they're they're required depending on the size and the length of the vessel through Transport Canada regulations, but they're not uh, required for all vessels, and they they come in different forms. And you know, we find a lot of people don't even realize that a that a PLB or an EPIRB is an option. But the truth is, I mean, some of these things are the size of a cell phone, and you can carry with them. I mean, it's extremely important that you have it with you when you're at sea. Um, it does no good in a book bag in the cabin or or on the dash of your truck. You need to have it on you, tied to your life jacket or, or around your neck or in your pocket. But, I mean, you push a button, it signals the SAR system that you're in trouble. This is where I am. I need help. And we get that signal, and then and we can jump right on that immediately. We can task helicopters. We can task boats, and they'll know right where to go. So great piece of equipment. Now, you're saying these things like everybody knows what you're talking about, but (laughs) I don't know what an EPIRB is, and I don't know what a PLB is, so uh, help us out with those. Excellent. So an EPIRB is an emergency position indicating radio beacon. That's uh, a long way of saying it's it's an emergency beacon that sends a signal to a satellite, and that satellite relays it to the appropriate people on land. Those appropriate people are us because we will coordinate the SAR response. It includes a position as well, so that makes it very easy. It's a recognized distress signal, so automatically when the signal uh, is turned on, we know that they're in trouble and we know where to go. A personal locator beacon, or PLB, it's it's more of a, a handheld version of that bigger EPIRB that you see on larger vessels. This would be something small, that's meant for personal use. We see them commonly in Grossmore National Park where, where the park hands them out to people who are hiking in the backcountry in case they get in trouble. But it doesn't, you know, it works on land, but it also works at sea. So if you're, you know, if you're a pleasure craft or a small boat that 
it's not required to carry an EPIRB, then it's a great option to have a, a, a beacon where you can push the button, send a signal to a satellite to alert people that you, you need help. And are they always manually um, activated or uh, can they be automatically activated in certain circumstances? I'm thinking if somebody is incapacitated, they won't be able to press the button, for instance. Yeah, and, and you know, that's, that's absolutely true. Some of, the, some of the EPIRBs that are carried on the bigger boats are water activated. So, um, you know, they have the option. But the personal locator beacon is, is not like that, which, which, you know, reiterates the importance of having a life jacket on. As Chris Lee mentioned, you know, you, that first minute of hitting the water is, is crucial, and it's one of the hardest things to get through. Um, that life jacket will really allow you to, you know, fight through that initial cold water shock and then give you a little bit of time to turn on your beacon. Um, I, uh, life jackets, um, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, like, why wear them or they're, they're hard to work in, but they, they really will give you a, a chance if you fall overboard. And, and it might even be simple as you're out on deck working um, and you fall overboard and you hit the water. Well, maybe your life jacket is the piece of equipment that keeps you alive long enough for your crew to turn around and rescue you. Um, the other thing with life jackets, and I, 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 I really want to say this because it, it bothers me, but from a rescue perspective, which is where, you know, where I work, the, the dark blues and dark gray life jackets, I know they look good, uh, but orange, bright red, these colors will allow you to be found. You know, a dark blue life jacket might keep you alive, but they're really hard to see when we're looking for you. And so um, next time you're, you're replacing life jackets, please, uh, to your viewers, lean into the orange. It's a nice color. It'll, it'll work just as well, better. Well, I mean, uh, that that's the thing, isn't it? And uh, when a rescuer is coming to your help, uh, they're coming usually, I would imagine, from the air or from a large vessel, looking out over a vast body of blue-gray water. And uh, orange does stand out. Orange is not naturally found in the ocean. <laughs> no, it's not. And, and, you know, we see that the dark colors are getting more popular, but, uh, but orange is the way to go. Um, orange, red, bright colors. All the safety equipment, really, we, you know, flares, the life jackets, strobe lights, or some kind of way to signal, um, all these things can really, there are ways that people on the water can help, um, help us when we're trying to find them. These are ways that you can signal for help and make things a lot simpler and, and way more likely to result in something positive. My guests today are with the Canadian Coast Guard. Crystalie Cole is Deputy Superintendent of Search and Rescue. And Mark Gould, Supervisor of the Canadian Coast Guard's Maritime Rescue Subcenter here in St. John's. We'll have uh, more from them coming up right after this. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. This is On Target on your VOCM. My guests today are Crystal Lee Cole, Deputy Superintendent of Search and Rescue with the Canadian Coast Guard Atlantic Region, and Mark Gould, Supervisor of the Canadian Coast Guard's Maritime Search 
and Rescue Subcenter here in St. John's. And uh, Krista Lee, um, Mark was mentioning uh, personal flotation devices or life jackets. What should people consider when choosing um, a life jacket or a personal flotation device? Yeah, Linda, good question. So as Mark alluded to, you know, in PSDs and uh, life jackets, we see lots of those around. You walk into your local Canadian Tire, your Walmart, you see all these, uh, you know, nice-looking, dark-colored PSDs. But ultimately, uh, high visibility, like we already talked about, is definitely key. Someone's out there looking for you, that bright orange, bright yellow, red, it's going to catch their eye. The job is going to be the same, absolutely. They're going to keep you afloat, but uh, for the people looking, it's definitely going to make it a lot easier. Also, things such as um, a light of some sort. Um, you know, even as it starts to get dark, a strobe light that's uh, connected to your life jacket or somewhere on your person, something flashing, also will catch the eye of people if they if they happen to be out there, you know, searching for you. Um and another key here at Coast Guard and, and pretty much any commercial uh, industry with Solus-type life jackets, we would also have a sounding signaling device, some sort of whistle or something like that attached to attract, um, you know, people. You, sometimes you can see them and they may not be able to see you if you're in the water. So being able to make that sound signal to let them, let them know is another way to alert. So those are some of the key things. And it really is amazing sometimes, you know, when you're in the environment uh, to realize that your voice simply won't always cut it, that it can get very easily drowned out. Uh, Absolutely. I mean, uh, sometimes aircraft, I'm sure all of us have heard a helicopter or an airplane flying overhead and how loud that can be. Sometimes your voice just may not be enough. So something a little extra to just to draw that extra attention. And that high pitch, too, is a different, you know, sound wave, I would imagine. What about um, immersion suits? Uh, immersion suits, I mean, they're, they're always a good idea for our commercial operators. We know that sometimes space and storage and stuff are, are, are an issue, but obviously very highly recommended. Um, an immersion suit, when we talk about cold water immersion, obviously has a huge role to play in protecting you from the elements. Um, and also an increase in, in your functionality time and, and, of course, your survival time. So what does an immersion suit do exactly? Uh, well, immersion suit, generally, there are, there are different types, but generally, um, you know, it's just that extra insulation, flotation, um, keep the body warm, keep that body temperature up for a little longer. And I've heard this said before, too. How important is it to be wearing it properly? Uh, absolutely. Uh, wearing it properly definitely goes along with uh, with that. So, you know, um, wearing an immersion suit with the zippers half done up sort of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? When you enter that water and your suit is able to, to fill up with water, it doesn't keep the water on the outside and keep you dry, then it kind of defeats the purpose. So absolutely very important. And what about other things that you normally wear in a, in a workplace, uh, particularly as a, a, a crew person on a boat or whatever the case may be? You know, you're wearing these big boots, you're wearing all these kinds of things. Are there better things to wear than other things? Um, I mean, understanding that emergencies happen in situations we can't plan for them, that's why we call them emergencies. So I think just having 
just knowing we, we have to keep ourselves safe, um, you know, in our day-to-day work. So you talk about steel toe boots, rubber boots, heavy boots. Obviously, that's necessary in your day-to-day. But should the, you know, should an emergency happen, a uh, good idea would probably to get those heavy boots off your off your feet if you had to enter the water, of course. Um, it's yeah, it's a lot to think about, and and when the emergency happens, you can be as well trained as you want to be. Um, how do you keep your mind about you? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, you know, for us here, and for any, myself, um, I'm a mariner, so spend some time on the water. You just we just keep coming back to our training. Remember the things that you learned. Um, you know, try to. Think about all the things that you were that you were taught, and how just how are we going to get through this? What's the next thing? What do we do next? And pretty much anyone in the commercial industry, anyway, would have some sort of training to come back on. So just remembering that, uh, trying to anyway, and uh, yeah, that's key. How often do you? Um, I mean, what kind of training is required before you become uh, a crew on a, on a vessel? And um, how often is that? training i guess refreshed <laughs> if you will um so i guess it really depends on uh, on the position on board but ultimately the training is the same so there would be what we what we call a basic uh med that pretty much anybody who's going to work on a vessel would have and that just take covers the basics of you know survival it's uh it's your immersion suit training, your life raft boarding training, and, and very much, uh, basic firefighting training, those kinds of things. And there is a requirement for anyone who with a commercial ticket to, uh, to refresh that training every five years. But that's a TC, um, STCW regulation. So, Depending on the circumstances, is it better to stay close to the vessel, uh, get away from the vessel? Because we often hear different things at different times. Uh, absolutely. So it, again, it is very circumstantial and it does depend on the situation, but a uh, recommendation would be, you know, to stay with or on board your vessel until you absolutely cannot any longer. And if you have to leave your vessel, I mean, obviously the preference would be a, a life raft or, or some sort of rescue boat, another sort of vessel to keep you out of the water. But absolutely, uh, you know, at the very last minute we should say i guess stay with the vessel until you absolutely cannot my guests today on on target are uh, crystal lee cole deputy superintendent of search and rescue with the canadian coast guard atlantic region and mark gould supervisor of the canadian coast guard's maritime rescue Subcenter in st john's and mark what kind of agencies and uh, other uh, groups are usually or typically involved when a rescue is um, alerted Oh, my, Linda, you're going to get me in trouble if I forget someone. <laughs> I don't mean to do that kind of thing, but there's a lot of different agencies that are typically involved. There sure are. I mean, even within Coast Guard, we have, you know, our marine communications and traffic services, our radio station, our preparedness, our response, and a whole network of teams that support us. But external, the Coast Guard Auxiliary, a great organization made up of volunteers who support the search and rescue system and great resource ex- excellent men and women we have local uh, response agencies like volunteer fire departments municipal fire departments police ambulances ground search and rescue teams who 
you know, bring that uh, expertise into uh, search the shorelines and and our, our biggest partner, the uh, Canadian Armed Forces, the the military, the men and women in 103 Squadron in Gander, which support us with the Cormorant, and uh, in Greenwood with this wing and, and other support that's provided through those uh, through the Air Force and the uh, military. Uh, I mean, the network is huge. Uh, probably didn't get everyone, but uh, you know, we all play a part and work as a team. That takes a huge amount of coordination, I would imagine. It it does. I mean, uh, luckily we're we're very well trained and and experienced. So so we kind of we know what we're doing, and you know we practice together. We work together frequently with all of these agencies. So once we get going, once we once we start coordination, everyone kind of falls into uh, their particular role, and and we all just work together to to do it. You talked about that investigative piece, and it's I, I, I kind of hear you on that because, you know, in our business, uh, just like uh, um, emergency preparedness and, and uh, emergency response, you need to get as much information as possible to fe- really understand what you're getting into. So what is the, the typical rule of thumb? What are you looking for? What do you need? Uh, what information is absolutely essential? Uh, the biggest thing is the position. Um, you know, if people are in trouble, we need to know where they are. And and so a lot of the investigation comes down to trying to narrow that down as much as possible. It's why we always recommend that people have a sale plan with someone who's responsible that, that knows where you're going. We'll often get calls where, oh, they're gone fishing. And we'll have to ask, you know, where do they normally fish? And the person might not know. And that, and that information is really you know, that's crucial in, in narrowing down our search area. Um, the bigger it is, the harder it is to cover and the harder it is to find someone. So the position is a main thing. Um, the number of people that we're looking for, uh, very important. We need to know what we're trying to find, um, who it is, what they're wearing, a description of the boat. Um, so just, you know, if we're looking for a boat, what color is it? How big is it? Uh, any distinguishing marks or features that we could look out for. Um, and it, it really will dig deep and um, even into, you know, medical history, habits, things that might give us clues or leads that we could investigate and maybe, you know, find something out. For example, if, uh, you know, someone has a cabin nearby that they sometimes go to and they're reported overdue. Well, Maybe we'll check that cabin just to see if they they dropped in and hopefully find them perfectly fine, just forgot to check in. So that kind of information is all important. Um, And it's, it's, again, it's why we always encourage people to have all that recorded at home with someone who's responsible that's going to be looking out for you um, in in your beacon registry when you register that. Uh, If you have nobody at home who can, you know, you can file a sale plan with, uh, that's going to look out for you, then you can call Coast Guard radio station and, and let them know and they'll track it for you. Just make sure you close it out when you're home. And uh, last point on that, we always encourage people to call in early when when you suspect something that's uh, maybe not as it should be. We get a lot of over, overdue calls that happen, uh, you know, at sunset. It's starting to get dark. Someone is worried about a loved one who was gone to sea and that should have been home by now and they call us and uh, we always encourage people to call in a little bit earlier you know if, if you're 
you know, if that person was supposed to be in at lunchtime and you give them an hour and they're still not in, call us in and we can start our investigation. We might even start a search at that point because it's much easier to find someone in trouble in daylight um, than it is starting a search at that 10 or 11 o'clock at night and trying to find someone in trouble in the dark. Well, indeed, when you're out on that uh, vast water, it's like a needle in a haystack, even worse in the dark, I would imagine. It it truly is. And um, I, again, it's just reiterating some of the things we've said about life jackets, reflective, you know, bright colors, uh, lights or strobe lights or flares. It's really difficult to find someone in the water um, without a life jacket. You know, you're talking just, just someone's head on the surface, often in rough seas, strong winds, fog, and fog, rain, snow. Uh, you know, it it it's very difficult to find somebody that is, you know, without some kind of help. And and everybody can do their, you know, a little bit to to make themselves easier to find just by being prepared. My guest today on On Target, Krista Lee Cole, Deputy Superintendent of Search and Rescue with the Canadian Coast Guard Atlantic Region, and Mark Gould, Supervisor of the Canadian Coast Guard's Maritime Rescue Subcenter in St. John's. We'll be back right after this. Weekdays on VOCM, it's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. This is On Target on your VOCM. And we're talking cold water safety with Crystal Lee Cole and Mark Gould with the Canadian Coast Guard. And uh, Crystal Lee, um, what are some basic rules of thumb? What uh, If you had to give one message to uh, people out there um, listening right now who are considering a trip out on the water or who have already headed out on the water, what would it be? Excellent question. Linda, I love this. It's an opportunity for us to just get that message out there. Um, I think a little bit of preparation prior to heading out there can go a long way. All of the things that we that we talked about today, um, wearing, um, having and wearing your PSD, having one of those emergency beacons that uh, that Mark talked about, and registering it. Um, communication equipment, VHF radio, cell phone, sat phone if it if it's necessary. Being familiar with them, knowing how to use them. And uh, making sure they're all in good working order before before anybody heads out. All of those things come; they all come together, and they're all part. They all play a role in ensuring people's safety, and uh, you know, helping us as search and rescue to be more successful when that if and when that uh, that unthinkable thing happens. Uh, Mark, it struck me when you were talking about, you know, the importance of communication and ensuring that people, because you have to do that investigative work, you have to talk to people, find out uh, where people might be, what their habits are, those kinds of things. And um, what I've heard from some emergency responders um, on land is that sometimes people will simply call and say, boy, I've seen something on Facebook. Are you, I'm surprised you haven't already, you know, those kinds of things. Do people rely a little too heavily on social media? Uh, you know, sometimes, but in that regard, it's it's not a bad thing. If somebody is seeing something and the, they want to make sure that there's a response happening, you know, we don't we don't mind those calls. Uh, they're, they're it's just someone trying to be helpful to make sure that uh, that there's a response happening. So, you know, social media has has benefits and and there's some downsides as well. But uh, operationally, here we we 
don't uh, we don't dig too much into uh, the social media aspect. Well, that's what I was going to uh, suggest: is that uh, don't rely or or assume that the the social media that you're looking at is being monitored by the people who need to see it. Absolutely, um, very important to uh, to know who to call and. And, and our center, you know, we coordinate maritime search and rescue response, but, you know, we're also linked into all the other uh, agencies. And, and then, you know, we're easy to reach. You can call us direct. Our, uh, our local number is 709-772-5151. We have a 1-800 number, 1-800-563-2444. But really, uh, you know, you could even get us at, through 911 um, or VHF Channel 16, another great tool you can use. Uh, um, social media, reaching out uh, to, to people like that uh, is not necessarily going to lead you to the people that need to know. So once again, those phone numbers, 772-5151 or? 1-800-563-2444. And of course, 911 will work as well. They'll get you through to the right people. They will, yeah. I'm on one. You know, we're partnered with uh, with all the emergency uh, organizations, and I'm on one will be able to connect you up with us. And um, you know, VHF, uh, you make a you know a call for help, a mayday call on VHF 16. Uh, we have radio stations who are listening 24 hours all around. It's it's actually an excellent tool because when you make a uh, distress call on VHF radio. It's not just the Coast Guard that hears it. It's that everybody around you also hears that call. And there might be someone next next to you that you didn't even know that was there that can immediately come over and, and help you. So um, another great tool that people people can have, VHF radio. And people do want to help. Um, Krista Lee, any important um, uh, contact numbers or, or um, links that you want to share? Uh, no, I think Mark really, he covered it all. So I think the most important is the direct line for the Rescue Subcenter and a reminder of VHF Channel 16. And uh, that's those are the key. Uh, final thoughts, um, uh, Krista Lee, we have less than two minutes left. Uh, I'm going to give you each a, a short amount of time. Final thought? Uh, just a couple of things, Linda. Just like to say that uh, Search and Rescue is very much a group and a team effort. So not only do we rely on our partners, as we call them, but also uh, in the individuals. We, we depend on them to do their part to be prepared and uh, to know, you know, the right things to do. And uh, Mark, uh, any final thoughts? Uh, always, um, you know, just... Uh, don't hesitate to call us if you feel like something is uh, not going as it should or you're worried. We're happy to take the calls at any time. And uh, just wishing everyone that's out there a safe fishery. A safe and successful fishery. Absolutely. Uh, Krista Lee Cole, Deputy Superintendent of Search and Rescue with the Canadian Coast Guard Atlantic Region, and Mark Gould, Supervisor of the Canadian Coast Guard's Maritime Search and Rescue Subcenter in St. John's. I appreciate your time, both of you. Thanks to Janet as well for helping to coordinate all of this because she has a very important job as well. Uh, thank you both. Thank you, Linda. Thank you. And uh, we'll be back tomorrow. We're going to be talking about uh, dental health and hygiene and keeping your old chompers healthy (laughs) when we come back tomorrow on On Target. Thanks for listening, everyone. Have a great day.